Hey, badasses, Diane and Abby have the week off this week, but please listen to one of the most important episodes we have ever recorded. Learn about your baby's brain, sleep, and nighttime breastfeeding. We hope you are safe and healthy, and we will see you next week. Welcome to the Badass Breastfeeding Podcast. It's Diane, your lactation consultant. And I'm Abby, the Badass Breastfeeder. And I got the review of the week. Yay! Woo! So <laughs> it is. I I kind of really like this one because oh, it comes from somebody who's not a lactation consultant and who does not have kids. So, oh. or maybe she is a lactation consultant. It doesn't say for sure, but she is. Her, her name on here is... Love Swami, and she says she's learning so much. And she says, someone who supports new mothers in her work and also plans to breastfeed her babies, this podcast is a gem. Who thought you could learn this much and be so entertained at the same time? I love the direct, authentic perspective these ladies are coming from. Their experiential knowledge and plus strong voices equal an amazing and inspiring production. And I think that's really cool because to listen to a podcast over something that you've not experienced. Like, it's it's different, you know? Like, I love that we have um, people that work in the field. Yes, because she's clearly working with families, and it must influence her work, which is so awesome. Right, and but she's never breastfed herself. So yeah. I just, I love that she is just, like, sucking up all this knowledge and that she appreciates it so much and that she's entertained because, believe me, sometimes we're not entertained by ourselves. Right. So... <laughs> I love that somebody else is entertained by us. Yes, that is awesome. Yeah, because you don't see what goes on on the other end of this, people. So um, I think it's I think it's fantastic, and I hope that she continues to support these moms. I think it's great. So thank you, thank you. And today we are so excited to have Tracy Castles, PhD, from Evolutionary Parenting, and let's get right to it. All right. Thank you, Tracy, so much for being here today. We really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Well, thank you so much for having me. And you, you have a PhD in developmental psychology. Yes, I right? do. And that you, is. Yes, and you have um, the website Evolutionary Parenting. I do. Which is, <laughs> was, is a, one of the very few websites that I actually go to and just believe everything on it you know <laughs> oh no I know I can say I, anything <laughs> I'm like I read it there so this is true because <laughs> you know what you're talking about and you've done the research and it's all evidence-based yes yes I mean I do you know I'll be clear sometimes we have a lack of evidence and so I'll report on you know the little bit that we know that's been done and unfortunately in a lot of cases I think that is the evidence is well or rather the research just isn't there on everything right. but we do well, have some so guidelines you, so then you say that yeah right yeah. yes um and so yes yeah, so and there's a lot on your website about breastfeeding and sleep Mm-hmm. I mean, you can go you can go to her to evolutionaryparenting.com and you can find 
anything on any parenting topic that you're looking for, but we're going to really hone in today on breastfeeding and sleep because I feel okay. like that's one of those are really, those are really hot topics. I think for new parents or really oh, new and older parents. And, oh, yes. And exactly. Right. Yeah. So you have a, so, you know, when somebody has a new baby, you know, you're so tired, you just want to sleep. And it just seems like your new baby has different plans. Like they're mm-hmm. just like, well, no, I, you know, this is not what I want to do. And they're <laughs> all night and they're nursing all night. And then you just kind of feel like you're not in sync with them. Yeah. So what's the deal with that? Do they know something about nighttime that we don't know about? Do they know something <laughs> about, you know, breastfeeding that we don't know, or maybe that we've forgotten? Well, I think it's probably both. Um, I mean, certainly with breastfeeding, there's the element of building up supply, as you know. So, I mean, of course, nursing throughout the night is one of those ways in which a woman can really build up and maintain her supply. Um, But more than that, a baby that's growing has, you know, a tiny little stomach. And breast milk is so bioabsorbable that they cannot simply sustain themselves all night on the small amount that they are getting. So we look at that and you obviously see a need to eat frequently throughout the night. And then, of course, if you're one of those parents who unfortunately has a child with something like a tongue tie or a lip tie or reflux or silent reflux or an allergy, you may see a lot of behaviors that result in even more frequent nursing as they try to get there. Um, There's also a really important factor here that has nothing to do with breastfeeding per se, but breastfeeding, the act of sucking, and and digesting at this time really seems to build up the, really seems to help myelinate uh, the vagus nerve. And for those that don't know, that is the nerve that kind of runs from the brain. It's the wandering nerve. It goes everywhere to your gut, to your heart, um, everywhere. Uh, And so what this does is this is the one that we use in our fight or flight. It helps us respond to stress. It helps us regulate our stress response. And certain parts of it, we really want to be myelinated. And that's when we have um, the myelin sheath that covers part of the nerve and allows for faster impulses to be sent to the brain. And breastfeeding seems to actually facilitate this. So from the perspective of development in that regard, it it actually would be really important to have a child that is suckling successfully. there's that element to it. There's the feeding element. And then of course with sleep for the first month in particular, children don't have the circadian rhythm that we have. They're not aware of day night differentiation. So they kind of sleep when that sleep pressure becomes high, we feed them, they fall asleep, they wake, rinse, repeat. Uh, So with that, they're obviously as they wake going to nurse again. And it just means there's this period in which they're simply not on our time frame. They're not expected to be on our time frame. And I think when you look at other cultures around the world where they have this period of rest for mom, it typically is around six weeks long. And you look at how long it takes infants to kind of get out of that newborn stage. And you're starting at the bare minimum of around six weeks long. So historically, I think there has been an awareness, even if it hasn't been an explicit awareness of what is happening with infant sleep. But giving mom the time to rest and be with her infant as her child needs um, has been an important part of many cultures. And it's just one that we happen to have lost. Yes, we have definitely lost that. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so basically what you're saying is, is people should expect, shouldn't expect to see any kind of schedule or kind of rhythm for at least six weeks. 
No, I, I don't think at all. Sleeping when they're tired. Yes. And that tired period is often not very long. They can't stay awake for long, but in turn, they don't sleep as long. So they won't stay awake for more than a few hours at a time, sometimes just one or two hours in that period um, before they fall asleep again. But in turn, you can't expect them to sleep eight hours after only being awake for one or two hours. So they kind of go in these cycles as they build up more of this endurable awake period and slowly start to consolidate um, sleep over chunks of time. And we do, we think, I think we live in a culture that just pushes against that so much where we're sending, oh, absolutely. You know, we're sending people back to work at just a few weeks. We're expecting babies to sleep eight hours, 12 hours. I mean, my baby was not, not very old. I can't think of him a few months old, maybe, maybe not even that. And, and I, and sh my pediatrician said, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. She said, um, how often, how long is he sleeping? His longest period of sleep. And I'm like, I'm thinking, I don't know, three hours. And she looked at me and she was like, oh, he should be sleeping around 12 hours now. Oh my God. 12. Oh, and see, so and that's have, just, and it have, makes no sense. No, and you have met, so then you have medical professionals that are putting this in people's minds too. And then, so people are then thinking something's wrong. You know, mm -hmm. something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with my baby. I need to do something. And then we have, and then we have all these interventions, you know, yes. of trying to get babies to sleep more. And, and, and then we have all of these, you know, I mean, you know, before we, um, when you and I were just talking about doing this um, episode, we were talking about all these other environmental things that are new in our modern world that interfere with sleep or affect our sleep. Exactly. There's so much. And, you know, that's the hard part is that sometimes there are things families can do um, that might improve sleep a little bit. You know, if you've got screens going before or very bright lights going before, obviously those things can have an impact on your child's ability to sleep. Um, lights impact, blue wave lights particularly, uh, reduce melatonin production. Mm -hmm. And things like screens can just be overstimulating along with the blue light production. So there are small things families can do. And sometimes those smaller things can have a greater impact than people predict. But by and large, we really shouldn't be expecting young children to be sleeping through the night. And in fact, none of the research we have really supports the fact that they even do this, right? So we're not even, when we think about longest stretches of time that infants are sleeping, now that we start looking at research using more objective measures, um, like video, videography and uh, actigraphy, actigraph, it's... Um, they're just not doing it. These long stretches look a lot shorter. It's just that some kids happen to be able to kind of wake up, rouse, and go back to sleep again, and others don't. Right, and I think that's another thing that we forget too, is that, is that people are born just different. Mm -hmm. You know, we have different personalities, we have different temperaments, and you know, somebody will say, well, my, but my neighbor's baby is sleeping through the night. <laughs> Why is my neighbor's baby doing that and not my baby? Well, we don't really know. <laughs> It's exactly, and temperament, I mean, that's something you and I were talking about too, yeah. is people really underestimate the effect of temperament. It is such a strong predictor of how well, and, and I hate even using the word well, but how a child sleeps. Um, because it's not necessarily that these longer chunks are better, right? And so children who are what we would probably refer to as higher needs or the orchid child or intense children, these are ones that tend to not sleep as well or as consolidated as other children and 
you know, for many families, they have a child like this and they just think never again, next time I would do it differently. And I have to say to them that, you know what, even if you did things differently, probably nothing would change because that's who your child is. And those kids are so sensitive to their environments and the type of nurturing and caring they receive that in fact, if you did do it differently, you might actually kind of break them. So if you want the child that is thriving within their temperament, you really have to look and those high needs ones really need more support, uh, more sensitivity, more responsivity, and this includes sleeping with them, waking with them, nursing them, and all those things that everyone tells you you're just making rod for your own back with. Right, right. And that's what, you know, whenever, when, when people contact me and they say, I, I'm so tired. This baby is just breastfeeding all night. I don't know what to do. And they're, you know, when I don't nurse them, they're very upset. And I always, the first thing I say is, are you co-sleeping? Yeah. You know, because it just makes it easier. Yeah, and, it's, and, oh. and, and there's all kinds of reasons, you know, why, why it's important. Yeah. And that's, you can look to James McKenna, the new breast sleeping. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really evolved together. They co-evolved so that, you know, mothers and their babies can each get what they need throughout the night. Um, co-sleeping facilitates an ease of breastfeeding for many mothers. That means they're able to sleep better. And it's not impossible to breastfeed throughout the night and have your child in a cot next to you or even another room. But for most mothers, you are going to be far more tired than if you have a baby next to you who can learn to latch on the side. So, I mean, I think for many families, they have to kind of come to that acceptance. And yet we have such a fear around co-sleeping. And this is part of the problem that, you know, a lot of researchers have talked about now is that are we at odds with the public messages we're giving? We're pushing breastfeeding on one hand and then really demonizing bed sharing on the other. And those are really incompatible for a really tired mother who wants to breastfeed but simply can't sustain the number of times a child is breastfeeding throughout the night without being able to stay lying down and co-sleeping with the child. So we really have to take a long, hard look at what it is we really want from others and what kind of nuanced advice we're willing to give uh, in order to help them actually maintain their sanity and achieve the goals that they've set for themselves with respect to breastfeeding. Yeah, that's so important. And, and you know, it's true because it, it is such a contradiction. And, and, and is there, I mean, we talk about um, bed sharing and co-sleeping on, on the podcast all the time, and we're big proponents of it. Um, and we talk about the fear mongering too. And I mean, is there evidence there? Is there something behind that? You know, why is there so much fear mongering around this? Oh, that's a big question. Um, (laughs) I mean, for a while, there was the issue that we had a lot of research that suggested it was dangerous. Um, We've gone back and looked at a lot of that research and seen that it was far more nuanced than the types of conclusions that were being made. So if you look at some of the way they measured variables at the time with respect to drinking, um, drug use, smoking, some of those were never included. Some of them were, but really poorly measured. And as we get closer to actually separating out these risk factors that truly are risk factors, right? right? So every family should be aware of these and and really 
take them to heart, we start to see that it's not as, or even not at all, a risk factor for, um, for SIDS, which is the largest right. risk. It, more recent, oh, sorry? Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say more recently, one of the most interesting pieces on this uh, was Cecilia Tamori and I believe Melissa Bardick, who looked at uh, a syndemics approach. And this is really looking at how a lot of these factors that are linked with an increased risk of SIDS are also linked with socioeconomic um, and racial factors, mm -hmm. um, which tend to go hand in hand in the US. And that it's really not about bed sharing at all, but when you get down to it, you look at the social constructs that are preventing families, you know, lack of early health care, lack of prenatal care, lack of, you know, support, um, low SES, all these things are predictive of both higher bed sharing rates, um, actually, and also higher rates of these other factors that are risk factors. And so really what we're looking at is a cultural phenomenon that is probably more intricately linked to SES and a society that is inherently unequal than we are looking at any inherent risk with bed sharing. That is so important, yeah, to, to talk about as well, is the inequality mm -hmm. and, the, and how that plays into, yeah, like you just said, in, into, the, into, the, into the risks and the dangers yeah. that are being promoted, yeah. Well, so, so with bed sharing, there, there's, um, it's so hard to talk about sleep and breastfeeding separately because they do go together. <laughs> like, so it's just, they're meant to be together. Yeah. Um, they are. So, yeah. When, and so what about this from like, you know, because we talk about, you know, the, we're talking about all this research going on and the risks and all that, but, but what about from an evolutionary perspective? Like, is, you know, there weren't cribs or nope. separate rooms thousands of years ago. Um, so what, funny to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> like the Flintstones, you know, when they had yeah. the, the, everything made out of stone. And, <laughs> stone and bone. <laughs> right. right. Uh, so, um, you know, humans are meant to, to sleep together. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's one of my favorite quotes um, on the topic, and I, I now use it, I kind of stole it, was from Sebastian Younger in a podcast he gave uh, at the end of 2018. And he was asked about infant sleep um, because of his book Tribe that deals with this issue and talks a bit about the parenting and, and how we are so far from our evolutionary roots in this front. And he said, you know, we have to think about infant sleep as if you were camping. What would you do if you were camping? Would you put your baby in a different tent, you know, 15 feet away if you're out in the wilderness? Or would you be sleeping with that child right up against you in the one tent to protect them? And from an evolutionary perspective, that's really far more similar to what we expect and what our babies expect at a biological, basic, instinctual level um, than what we currently have today. And so when they're crying out for us and they're looking for that comfort in that person, it's not because they're trying to manipulate you in the negative sense of the word. Um, they're really trying to find that biological basis that has been a part of human history for 
human history <laughs> the entire time. So right. that's, yeah. yeah, your baby doesn't know that it's not 40,000 years ago with exactly saber tooth tigers walking around. <laughs> right. And even with, yeah, exactly. And you know what? We don't even have to go to saber tooth tigers. If you think about <laughs> the fact so that, and I know they're really, my daughter loves them. Um, but if you think about the fact that they are completely helpless, yeah. if we were, imagine if you couldn't walk, you couldn't talk, you couldn't feed yourself, you couldn't change yourself, you couldn't really even move, basically. And you were put down somewhere and left with no conception of when someone was coming back, why they're gone, who might else be coming, because you don't understand, you're now in a whole foreign world. This could be a war zone, this could be anything. You have no idea where you are and what's happening. It would be terrifying. And unfortunately, that is the reality when we think about that kind of experience from our children's perspective. They are absolutely unaware and helpless. And so whether there's a saber-toothed tiger or not, the fact remains that they have zero control over themselves. And so the only control they have is basically to cry and communicate to you, hey, could you keep me close? Just, you know, let's make sure I live is really what they're doing. Yes, that's so interesting. Right. Yeah. Help me live. Yeah. I yeah. Need to, it's really just, they're just in survival mode. Exactly. And the people who help them survive are us. And they have some wonderful features to help them along. I mean, that's the whole cute baby thing is they're so cute that you put up with a whole heck of a lot. Um, but that is to help them survive. Soft skin, cute faces. Um, and that high-pitched cry is a survival mechanism. It is to get your attention and make sure you respond to it. Because if you didn't, again, historically, if you didn't, guess who else it would attract? That saber-toothed tiger. Right, right, right. So it really is, they are designed to be cared for by us and to elicit that care from us. So it's really, and eventually nighttime does take on special meaning, right? That's a different thing that we kind of, some parents forget and they still treat it all. In the first six weeks, night day is very much similar for them. Um, later on, there really are unique considerations for nighttime that parents have to take that can be difficult too. Um, but overall, the entire role of an infant is to survive. Right, right. So you're talking about the so so what so what about as they get older? What is the significance of of night? Oh well, there's so much significance. I mean, nighttime is inherently a scary time. You think about the perspective that we acknowledge there are certain fears that humans have that we consider more biological, right? So you look at psychological literature and you see them far more pervasively, and there's a link to our survival to them. Right. And so we kind of view them as these very basic ingrained fears. Some of us have them more or less so than others nowadays. But by and large, you can look at heights, um, certain foods we can be averse by if things um, don't look very tasteful. We're averse to sick people. Um, if people have symptoms of being sick, we are likely to stay away from them. Um, and also the dark. Being afraid of the dark is a very normal human condition and it's linked to all the dangers that come out of the dark we are very heavily reliant upon our visual sense and our hearing is not nearly as 
adapt. And so when it comes to night and the fact that we lose one of our senses uh, and one of our most prominent senses, um, it's really not that odd for us to be afraid of that, right? So for kids as they get older, we forget that being afraid of the dark is something that they are likely to experience, um, likely to want some more support from. And this goes beyond infancy. This is where it gets harder is, you know, you see kids afraid of the dark up to five, six, seven years of age, um, even older sometimes. And, you know, we tend to in our culture, think down upon that. Somehow there's something wrong with them or whatnot. But really, in reality, they're manifesting and expressing a very basic fear for most humans. And so there's not something to be bad about, but it means they do seek, again, our comfort and our support through that. Because without that, they just simply aren't, aren't able to calm themselves, right? Right, right, right. And, I, and, I, and as you're talking, I'm thinking, I'm not all that comfortable with the dark. And I'm 42. No. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's scary. I mean, you don't know what's in there. Yeah. It's, and I always say, you know, again, going back to that analogy of sleeping outside, mm-hmm. you know, for a child, it may be, yeah, we know we're inside. We have our safe doors. They still don't necessarily grasp the importance of being inside. So I always say, okay, how would you feel going out and sleeping outside? And depending on where you live, that could be more or less scary. I would not love being in a tent in my backyard now. We moved to the country. In the morning, in the snow, you can see various footprints of goodness knows what. I know we have coyotes. I know there's wolves in the area. And I know that there are fishers who are violent little critters. Um, We've had, you know, we had some creature in our backyard once that destroyed a raccoon and left his head. Oh, my and skin On the outside. And it was like, oh, this is our backyard. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not so sure. I want to be out there. Um, so for them, that's a similar fear. They're not so sure that this whole dark business is really that safe. And so, again, you go to the people that are, you've been trusted with your survival and again, it's, it's your parents. So coming back to us is always something that is very um, normal, for lack of a better word, even if it's not typical in our society. You know, and that's exactly when I, you know, because I, 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 I signed up for your newsletter, which you all should do <laughs> at evolutionaryparenting.com, is sign up for the newsletter okay. because it's just such an awesome newsletter. It's, not, it's always just like this really important topic. And I love reading it. And I was reading the one, um, and it was, you were talking about, um, me, uh, similar to what we're talking about right now, but I was thinking about the dark, and you know, you were talking a bit about being afraid of the dark and, and, and this, and I just thought, oh my gosh, what an amazing thing to share with Jack, my seven-year-old, yeah. who's, who's afraid of the dark. And I, and I, you know, I immediately went to him, and I was like, do you know that this is like, normal it's even like it's even like it ties you to your ancestors it's like what has kept us alive and on this planet and like you know has has just helped us survive this whole time you know and I'm like it's actually cool you know this is a this is like a superpower that you have that heightens all of your senses and keeps you you know alive and, and of course like you said we live in these you know protected you know environments now but but you're you know you don't you're still we're still so tied to this we're always going yeah. to be tied. This is the, the whole idea of evolution, right? Mm-hmm. And I often find that babies are almost this microcosm 
of evolution, that you start out being born with those very basic instincts that we had hundreds of thousands of years ago, and they slowly develop almost the way we developed. But you have to respect the fact that at these various earlier points, they don't have the fundamental understanding of safety outside of human contact, that we can feel safe in an enclosed house, that we have locked the doors and that makes us safe. That's not, their imaginations run wild. Their brain does not register things in that manner until they're older. And that is, you know, something that can be really hard to accept, but I think it's really important to accept when you're thinking about your child at night. Right, right. Right. And whether they, whether they're seven and they know they're scared of the dark and they're asking you to go down the hallway with them or they're a baby and they're, you know, they're, they're not, they're crying every time you, you know, put them down or put them in the other room or whatever. This is mm-hmm. a thing. Yeah, it's a huge thing. And it goes on. I mean, as you said, you're not that comfortable with the dark. Neither am I. And a lot of adults have lights on in their bedrooms just to have that little bit of light at night to wander around. But just think about just even as an adult during the day, you hear a bump, you're usually like, what was that? At night, you hear a bump, your heart goes running, your heartbeat's going, the adrenaline's flowing, you're ready to go. Um, And, you know, it's, exponentially worse for our children. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, you hear that bump of the night and I'm like, we really need a bat in the corner (laughs) to keep that mace in the side table. You know, during the day you're like, oh, of course it was just a, you know, the radio or the whatever, you know, but it's just, it is such a different, it is such a different time. It really is. Acts so differently. It is. And they feel that, and you know, and it's not just about the fear, even though the fear could do it, but there's lots of behaviors. Like I, you know, in that same newsletter, we spoke about the whole breastfeeding at night um, for older kids, because sometimes parents really get this idea that, no, my kid is old enough. They shouldn't need to nurse at night anymore. And unfortunately, there's also some people that go out and promote this idea that they don't need it. Um, and I hate that. Whenever we talk about what a child does or doesn't need, there is never a point blank answer. There is never a stage at which we say, all children do not need this. Um, all seven-year-olds don't need to have a nightlight or have their parents walk them down. No, some may be fine with it, some aren't. And similarly with breastfeeding, some kids don't breastfeed at night that much or at all by the time they're two or three. Um, some are avidly nursing throughout the night, and there's so many different reasons for it. Um, so to kind of negate that and say they don't need it ignores the very important biological role that breastfeeding plays, Not, and they may not need it for food, and I think that's what people are going for, but it plays such an integral role in terms of comfort and safety um, and even just calming the vagus nerve again, right? That suckling sensation seems to actually help reestablish Um, the vagus nerve, if it's been stressed. So it actually calms them at a physiological level. So if you have a child who is um, highly stressed or anxious because of whatever, it might be a change in routine, they might have started daycare or started um, preschool, depending on the age, they might have just been scared, there might be visitors, they might have had a bad day. All these things can lead to a need to feel more calm than usual, which breastfeeding facilitates for them. You may have a child who's teething, or in pain, or sick, or this or that. And again, breastfeeding helps them. Breastfeeding is easily digestible when our kids don't feel very well at a physical level. 
and gives them nutrition when they may not really be able to handle much else. Um, so when we start to get down this whole they don't need it, it really ignores that many kids do need it for a variety of reasons and that extend beyond food. It's not about food, it's about comfort. And it's okay to think about breast milk that way. Whenever I hear people talking about breast milk solely as, well, I wouldn't give my kid you know, lasagna in the middle of the night. Um, why would I give them breast milk? I'm A, like, A, you haven't had a kid on a growth spurt yet because clearly you do sometimes give them lasagna in the middle of the night. Um, but two, it is qualitatively different. There is absolutely, we cannot treat breast milk like food. It is just quite simply not the same, that the, the proximity, the contacts, the closeness, everything provides a level of security that is needed for sleep. And some kids need it more than others. And we can't, again, looking back to those high needs kids, we can't say they're faulty or there's something wrong with them. That is just who they are. And this is what they need to help develop at their pace. And I mean, you've had a child that nursed late and frequently I've had, I have one still have another, but the ones that are out of it, you get to that stage. And I can tell you, eventually it does stop. And they're awesome children at the end of it. Um, it's just a lot more work at the beginning at times. That's so true. Yeah. It, it did seem like, it seemed like so much work with Jack, who was, mm -hmm. he's really on the far end of the high, of the, you know, highly sensitive child. And it seemed like so much work and it seemed like there was something wrong. And when, when I started to to really learn more about this, mo mostly from evolutionaryparenting.com, I just, I thought, well, that's just him. And I, and I, I even remember saying it to a friend of mine. I said, and on a day where I was feeling really bad about myself and, you know, my kids were, you know, everything's feels like it's, you know, not working. <laughs> and I, I said, uh, I guess I did this to them or, or I can't, I said oh. something like that. And she said, um, she said, nobody did anything to them. This is, this is who they are. Mm -hmm. you know, that's just it's, who they are. And I was like, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and it's so important because I hear people coming in with second kids and they're talking about, oh, we have to do it differently. And it's just, no, you know what? That is not the answer. The answer is to look at your child as your child and to be able to realize that they are different. And, you know, our society puts so much pressure on the idea of sleep. Um, and it drives me nuts because there's so much more to parenting, to raising a, a well-rounded, wonderful child um, than there is to sleep. And so, you know, I've had families that I, I did a little experiment for a while when it came out because I work with a lot of families and they all are very stressed out and many are about sleep, but not all. But I decided to ask them all, I said, okay, what do you think is the most important thing? that you can do for your child or in your relationship. And every time the answer was sleep. I had one mom who said who immediately sleep. And then she was like, yeah, somehow I feel like that's wrong, but I don't know what else. And I was amazed because literally we have been brainwashed into thinking that if our children do not get consolidated sleep and enough sleep, like they tell us, we will have apparently the most dim-witted, idiotic, self-centered, unable to regulate children on the face of the earth. And the fact of the matter is, is that that's complete bullshit. It is totally. absolutely not true at all. 
that, you know, our children will be perfectly healthy and happy and far more important than sleep is a secure attachment with us. The knowledge that they are loved and supported through everything, providing them with appropriate stimuli and taking them out to meet people. And I mean, you could list so many other things before sleep that have a far greater impact on who our children are. And I'm loving some of this research. There's a research group out of uh, Montreal. They really seem to be tackling some of these topics using large scale twin data. And they were the first ones a few years ago to identify that, you know, when they look at sleep development in kids, very little at night in terms of the consolidation of nighttime sleep has anything to do with anything we do. It is purely developmental. Whether you try and change this, that, or the other, you really don't make much of a difference. So mm. people should really just kind of, you know, all this sleep training, everything, it doesn't really change anything. Mm. Um, they let are going to sleep. And let that sink in. It, <laughs> well, and that comes too with other research on sleep training per se, where for the longest time parents were told, you know, you have to do this for your kid. You know, if you don't do this, you're harming your child. They need the sleep. It's good for them. They need the consolidated sleep. And then we started actually doing objective measures of sleep. And guess what? After sleep training, although the parents are reporting better sleep, the child's sleep hasn't changed at all. They're not sleeping anymore than they were before. They're still waking the same. And so we're not actually fixing our kids' sleep. We're fixing our problem. We're escaping from our problem mm -hmm. of being woken up. And so, you know, their more recent study, though, was um, on whether or not a certain stretch of consolidated sleep was needed um, or affected maternal mental health. And again, lo and behold, all this idea that maternal mental health is affected by these long stretches on a larger scale was not supportive. Um, and it also didn't have any effect on child cognition. So this idea that kids who are having this interrupted sleep are not going to perform as well cognitively also did not hold up. Um, the kids with the disrupted sleep were actually performing just as well. And when you look at the research on this idea of consolidated sleep, the longitudinal studies on this that look at this, unfortunately, most of them only look in the very early days, um, but some look a little bit later. By and large, the average is the opposite. Kids who have the more consolidated sleep seem to be performing worse huh. on many of these later outcomes. So, I mean, and we don't know that it's not necessarily causal, right? This very well could be an issue if there's some third variable that impacts both. Um, and it may, and quite realistically, we need a whole lot more research on that to really disentangle it. But considering the common myth is that children need this consolidated sleep to do well, we're pulling research from adults and extrapolating it downward, forgetting that child sleep is different. Infant sleep is different than Toddler sleep, toddler sleep is different than child sleep, child sleep is different than adult sleep. Our sleep cycles shift and change as we grow, and our needs shift and change as we grow. And so when we ignore what has been biologically normal for so many years, we're really doing it at our own peril. It's not a appropriate thing to be doing. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I see that, and, and, and I, because, you know, I, I mean, I know, I know what it's like to be miserable and to want sleep and want my children to just finally go to bed so that I can be alone. 
you know, but when you, and I know mm-hmm. social media is not at all any place to make judgments on the world, but not all the time, but, <laughs> um, you know, you look no. at these moms, these, you know, these parents that are claiming to be tired and they can't function and, but you see what I also see are these incredibly funny and talented and creative people that are sharing their lives and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're actually flourishing in these times. Yeah. No, and there, again, I understand what it's like to have a bad day, but like, you know, if you really think about what's going on with you when you have, when you're a new parent, you know, a lot of people are really, you're still, you're not sleeping. You're still, you're still, you're functioning. I mean, you're like, you're built, you know, your baby is designed to be, you know, to not be sleeping these long periods of time. So, so therefore we are able to, 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 to handle it. You know what I mean? Like, well, and it's also worth, we're built to withstand it to a degree, but it's also worth noting that we also didn't involve, pardon me, involve, we didn't evolve um, without support. And when we look at, this is kind of one of those evolutionary mismatch things. Our society and the way we evolved with our child rearing um, really are at odds with each other. So, for example, you think about, uh, Meredith Small gave this example in um, a podcast on the Attachment Parenting Podcast, I think it was, and she talked about her graduate student who studied the Mohawk people who, they live in longhouses, and um, they found they're far more, this, this was a group that was still kind of living more traditionally as the Mohawk people did. And they have, you know, a longhouse of which, you know, approximately 10 to 15 family members, extended family all live together. And in many cases, they still have the period of two sleeps, which we used to have. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's research on that, that we used to wake for an extended period at night. And this was likely due to sharing the burden of staying awake overnight to keep watch, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Everyone's asleep. You're at a higher risk of being eaten by that saber-toothed tiger. Mm -hmm. So we did used to have this period of two sleeps, and but they don't always coincide. Not everyone gets up at the same time. And what she found when you look at a new baby is for mom, it was that situation where sometimes mom would get up, mom would nurse, but if baby was awake, awake, someone else, whoever was awake would take the baby and baby gets passed around to whoever's awake. And sometimes it's mom. And if baby needs to nurse, goes back to mom who nurses and may fall back asleep with mom. And when mom's up, mom's up, but there's a shared burden of care. And that shared burden has been instrumental in our development as a species. And there's research on that from Katie Hine and colleagues. Um, that's basically the basis of the book, Mothers and Others. Um, and it's just, it is one of those things that we can't negate because I don't want parents to think they, when they're struggling, that somehow they're weaker than other moms. They feel like they weren't made to do this. Um, it's absolutely not the case that we really were designed to do this all alone. Um, and especially not with the demands put on modern time. Like you talked about before, having to go back to work at, you know, six weeks of age. When your baby's six weeks, you're not going to work at six weeks. Um, then you really have a lot that's supposed to be going on and that's very difficult to kind of cope with. And it's not weak to struggle with that. The problem we have, I find, in our society is that our solutions are twofold. One, don't nurse your baby at night, which is antithetical to their, well, to so much, to their overall well-being if they are being nursed. 
Um, it's also antithetical to a mother's wishes who wants to nurse. Mm -hmm. So that's asinine. Um, the second one is putting the burden of change on the baby, which is sleep training, right? It's saying that there is no other solution except to sleep train the baby. And so when I work with families, part of what I always now include, I make it a, a mandatory part, is we talk about self-care. And we talk about ways to meet our needs without sacrificing our children's needs. And this looks different for every family. And I know how tired people are, so I don't actually expect them to come up with it on their own. This is a collaborative process to try and work together and figure out how can you parent in a way that respects yourself, your child, your family, in a society that respects none of it. And it's hard, but I do find families can do it and they're often much happier when they've found that solution outside the box that isn't sacrificing their child, isn't sacrificing their sanity, um, but does mean some sacrifice in other areas perhaps, right? It's the messy house, it's not having everything perfect, it's, you know, maybe not getting all the little nitpicky things done during the week that you want to get done, but also being more realistic with ourselves of what we're capable of given our current situation. Yeah, that is so important. That is so important and such a good point because it is not, it is not possible to do absolutely everything that is expected of a parent these days. And this completely, people are completely isolated you know, to, to, yeah. like you said, care, care for a, for a baby around the clock by themselves, you know, and then and a lot of times other children and, you know, preparing to go back to work maybe, and, you know, dealing with this house and all these other responsibilities that modern life puts on us that you're, that's such a good point. It is not. And, and, and yeah, like you said, it's totally normal to struggle with that. And, you know, we do need help finding a way out and finding balance. Not a, not a way out because yeah. there is no way out really. No, but it's finding the way through. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I had that. I was actually the greatest quote that I, I don't even know if I can share. She said it to someone else, but I had a client who um, shared with the person who referred her to me, who shared it with me. She said, you know, after one of our calls, she said, you know, I, I think I realized, I think I was looking for a way out, but I feel like I've got a way through now. And that's exactly what, I kind of hope people can find because we don't want out. We don't want to sacrifice our children and their needs mm -hmm. just because we're struggling in the moment. And that's what the way out is. It's just, I'm out, I'm done. Right. And it doesn't benefit anyone in the long run. Right. I mean, it's just not something that it doesn't help our relationship with our kids. It doesn't help us and our feelings of competency. And, you know, when we go there, the thing I always say is that, you know, the moment you start parenting in this more detached manner is the term I usually use. The more you detach yourself from your child and their needs, the easier it becomes to do the next time. And when you think, if you, I'll ask parents sometimes, you know, think about what you want with your relationship with your child when they're 15. And almost everyone wants their kids to be honest with them, to not be sneaking out, doing this or that. And that starts when they're young. There is absolutely no way you can have that if you have detached from them when they are two years of age, because that will continue. Unless you make a big turnaround, I shouldn't say never, that was very unfair of me. People can make massive turnarounds and create that relationship later on in life, absolutely. But it takes a very concerted effort to do so. Um, and it's usually easier just not to go down that path to begin with. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Because I do, and I think you're right. I don't think people actually want to do it. I feel like people no. just don't see any other way. Exactly. It's there's a feeling of helplessness. Yeah. And so they turn to it. And of course, it's perpetuated in our society. Um, I mean, how many times do I hear people come to me and say, you know, I'm thinking about night weaning. You know, all my friends say as soon as they did it, their kids slept through the night. Um, we put pressure on others or sleep train. As soon as they did it, their kids slept through the night. First off, if all of these people were telling the absolute truth, then the research we have is complete BS. Mm. Um, and so there may be, you know, I think there's a little something different going on. Uh, part of it is that psychologically speaking, when we've done something unpleasant or that we somewhat regret, we become more pushy on the outcomes um, because we don't want to feel bad about having to do it. We have to justify it. So when you hear someone pushing something like that, chances are they actually weren't in love with the outcome mm -hmm. and didn't love the process and are now trying to validate their own experience with it. Um, if it had truly been great for them and they were comfortable with that decision, they probably wouldn't be pushing it on you, to be perfectly frank. Uh, so you have, you know, that element of other people always pushing on it, but it's, you know, when that happens, I really caution people to really step back and just remember that even if we take them at their face value for it and say it did work for them, it doesn't mean you have to do it. It doesn't mean your child's going to respond the same. Mm -hmm. um, but this detachment is, I find, a big problem in what we're, we're pushing with each other, with other people. Um, so, yeah, that's one of the larger issues. I think. Yes, yes, that is. It, that's, yeah. And we could just go on and on and on. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we must stop here. Tracy, I hope that you will join us again in the future and we can keep talking about this, you know, maybe continuing to talk about self-care. Absolutely. And so, so let's, so where can people find you? Um, well, I, the site, evolutionaryparenting.com, there is a Facebook page that is run a bit by myself, though I have the lovely Amy Glenn, who um, does a lot of work on it for me, which is wonderful, uh, and, and I, where I live, up in Canada, that's don't, where people can find me. Don't, don't give people your address. You have weird animals in your backyard. We don't want to go there. We're kind of sick. Exactly. You don't want to come here anyway. Um, no, that's it. I mean, that's really the online presence there is the site is the biggest one, really. That's great. Yes. Evolutionaryparenting.com. You all have to go there. I'm going to put a link to it on the description of this episode. I'll also put it on our resources page so that you guys can all find all the resources there. And you talk a lot in this episode about working with other parents. And so what, yes. what kind of things can parents reach out to you about? What sort of, what sort of things do you do? What, yeah. Uh, <laughs> a lot of it is sleep. Um, so I do predominantly, I call it coaching. Um, it's not psychological treatment at all. That is not mm -hmm. the case. It is coaching and supporting families. So in terms of the topics, I mean, my goodness, I've had everything from finding daycare, welcoming new siblings, child anxiety, helping parents cope with that and transition, um, divorce, um, and very prominently sleep, um, but also just general parenting. I have families that I work with just to help them kind of get back on track with how they feel about parenting. It's um, sometimes we really struggle to find solutions and just feel like we're doing well at it. 
Um, so I will often work with families with that. But, um, and then a variety of sleep issues as well. So it's really kind of, I, I've managed to cover a lot, mainly because people have often started coming to me for sleep and then we just continue the relationship in a variety of other things. Yeah, I have to imagine that, because you know, when people you know, come, to, come to somebody like, you know, when they're having problems, you know, you just uncover so much. One thing might well, seem like a sleep issue and then it turns into kind of uncovering all kinds of other ways that you can help. Well, it's also, you know, it's not even necessarily that so much as I think you build a rapport with families when you see them through these times. When they feel empowered mm-hmm. to parent as they want, when something else comes up, they just tend to be like, hey, you can help with this. So, you know, I mean, it's been some of the questions of, you know, picky eating or handling, you know, how to help me pick a school for my kids. Um, Questions that come up with clients that may come back, you know, every three, four months with just a question and a call. And I I love it. And I love it because there's an ongoing relationship with the families. Um, I get to see these kids grow up. I mean, I have one family that I've been working with for a while who first came on and it's like, you know, this was a little baby when I first spoke to her mom and she's now starting kindergarten. And you're yeah. just like, how did this happen? Um, because in my mind, you know, sometimes I have to remember this is not a nine month old anymore. Right. Um, so these <laughs> behaviors are totally different. So it's, um, but it's lovely. It's wonderful that I, I just feel that there's a lot. And a lot of times, you know, I will end up referring out. I always do when I do sleep a health check because I often find, especially in higher needs cases, sometimes the problem is not sleep as much as a health problem, a feeding problem, so on. So I do refer a lot to lactation consultants. I'm always like, do you have a good one? Can you find a good one? Mm -hmm. Um, Because feeding such an integral, feeding problems have such an impact on sleep and you don't want to disentangle them and treat them separately. Um, And sometimes it's other health professionals that need to be referred to. But anytime that's the case, I mean, I'm always happy to make that referral and provide sources if I know them in the person's area. Um, and if not, then I, you know, am happy to ask around for them as well. But by and large, it's, uh, it's a one-stop shop for a lot of questions for families. Well, that's amazing. And we're going to put all this information on the website so you guys can find it if you ever want to um, reach out to Tracy. And Tracy, thank you so much for being here. It was really, really wonderful to talk to you. And you too. So much great information for having me. Yes. And thank you all for listening so much. And please share your experience in the review section on iTunes. And maybe you will be our review of the week. And head to badassbreastfeedingpodcast.com for sponsor links, promo codes, for our list of resources and all of our other episodes, and for information about how you can schedule your online consultation with Diane. Bye. Bye. Bye.